Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up later in this hour, the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division has closed the case that was reinvestigating the 1955 murder of Emmett Till. Hank Klimanoff, who spent so many years working on civil rights cold cases, and of course he hosts WABE's podcast, Buried Truths. He knows all about that work. He joins me to discuss the DOJ's latest decision. But first then, he's from the Adamsville neighborhood, very proud of it, to the Atlanta mayor's office. Mayor-elect Andre Dickens joins the program in studio to talk about his journey to becoming the city's top elected official and his vision for the first 100 days in office. All that's coming up on today's Closer Look, but we'll begin with this. The head of Atlanta CDC says, despite all the attention paid to the Omicron variant of the coronavirus, the Delta variant is still responsible for nearly all COVID-19 cases in the country. Now, Dr. Rochelle Walensky spoke during a White House pandemic briefing in the last hour. Over 99% of sequenced cases in the United States continue to be from the Delta variant. Right now, there are reports of Omicron cases in over 50 countries. And here in the U.S., there are confirmed cases in 19 states. And we expect that number to continue to increase. Now, Walensky says scientists work to better understand how this virus differs from other variants and whether it spreads more easily or causes more severe diseases. Now, she went on to stress that vaccination is still an effective tool to prevent severe outcomes from COVID-19. And in related news, the Atlanta Public Schools will likely consider mandating COVID-19 vaccines for staff as more of the cases are coming online. Now, school board chair Jason Steves said that the district has offered financial incentives, but staff vaccination rates remain low. We, as a system, cannot have people missing work because they have COVID and they're not vaccinated or because they were exposed to someone and they're not vaccinated because that gets them out of school or out of the office or wherever for two weeks, essentially. Estevez says the district cannot require students to get the vaccine, but will continue to offer incentives like gift cards to students who do get inoculated. Now, the statewide vaccination rate hasn't moved much in recent weeks. The State Department of Public Health says just 52 percent of Georgians are considered fully vaccinated. And a note of disclosure, WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. In other news, former U.S. Senator David Perdue's entry into the Georgia governor's race could be a test of former President Donald Trump's influence on the state Republican Party. All top state races now have a GOP candidate backed by Trump, as we hear from Susanna Capilouto. 
There is now somewhat of a Trump ticket in Georgia's Republican primary, says UGA political scientist Charles Bullock. That's because Trump-backed candidates are also running for U.S. Senate, Lieutenant Governor and Secretary of State. And if these nominees succeed uh, in getting the nomination, then it would indicate that uh, Georgia's Republican Party is very much aligned with Trump. Bullock says nationally there's been talk that the GOP has become the Trump party. He says while this Trump ticket could win the Republican primary, it may be harder for the candidates to win statewide, as Georgia's electorate has become younger and more diverse since 2018. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. And finally, yesterday, y'all know we talked with Santa D, also known as the Real Black Santa, and he shared his story of coping with the pandemic and his personal battle with the lingering effects of COVID-19. I did a lot of virtual this year, and I held off on doing virtual this this season because, again, being excuse me, being on on talking so much, the cough tends to come mm-hmm. in, and when 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 I have a coughing uh, fit. Yeah. Never know how long it'll last and how dramatic it'll be. Now, a number of listeners wrote in expressing their concerns about Santa D and wanting to wish him well. Well, we passed on your messages and maybe that will move some of y'all, not a lot, some of y'all a little higher up on the nice list. Maybe. Hopefully. This is Closer Look. <laughs> Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR, as always, I'm Rose Scott. Next month, Andre Dickens will be sworn in as Atlanta's 61st mayor. The pathway to victory for Councilman Dickens wasn't always clear or even believed it could happen. This is a uniquely Atlanta experience. This is a uniquely Atlanta story. How does a boy from Adamsville... Where they give you a 4% chance of making it to the upper middle class. How does this happen in the city of Atlanta? I was counted out way back then. That was then, and so now begins the work. Joining me now to discuss not only about his mayoral journey, but his vision within the first 100 days in office, Mayor-elect Andre Dickens, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me, Rose. This is exciting. I'm glad to be here. Man, how many times have you sat here in this studio in that chair? (laughs) (laughs) We have talked about it all, transportation, biking, housing. housing. Now you're mayor-elect. You know, I went back and I read a piece. It was an AJ piece back in September profiling your Safe Streets plan, and it referred to you as a candidate with, quote, Low name recognition numbers six weeks out from the election. And you had been polling Mm -hmm. 
pretty far behind former Mayor Christine Reed and City Council President Felicia Moore. When you think back just six, just this time ago, September, when you were considered this low name recognition <laughs> dude candidate to now, where goes through your mind? Yeah, you know, at that time I kept saying, just give me a shot. If you hear me, if you listen to my thoughts, my accomplishments, as well as the plans I have for the city, if you listen to that, I think it'll resonate. I believe that people will see themselves in my plans and see my delivered track record as, okay, he can lead this city. I always kept looking at that 40% of people that were undecided. They were undecided for three whole months. And there was a former mayor in there and a council president in there, and they still couldn't decide between the two. So I knew they were waiting on somebody new, and that was me. And I just had to continue to put forth the effort to make my story known, perform in the debates and in the forums, and also keep raising money to get my message out on television and in the streets. I understand that President Joe Biden reached out to you. What yeah. was that conversation like? <laughs> it was what amazing. What can you share? You know, the president called and said my name, and he said, congratulations, Mayor-elect Andre Dickens. He said, uh, you know, that was a resounding victory. I don't think I've seen anybody win in that kind of margins as a first-time candidate, you know, not an incumbent. He's like, you did good work. And he said, Atlanta special to him. Um, he said, Georgia's an important state, and I want to be as helpful as I can. Please, you know, consider the White House a friend. He said all those things, and I think that at every pause, he said, I just kept saying, thank you. Wow, thank you. You know, it was um, a humbling moment, and I told him that I uh, we got big plans in Atlanta around infrastructure, and I'm glad that his bill passed, and we'll be happy to get our funds so we can do work. Speaking of reaching out, it appears you have a pretty solid relationship with former mayors, Young, Ambassador Young, Mayor Franklin, Mayor Campbell, Mayor Reed, congratulated you. Uh, are you receiving or have you asked just, listen, what should I avoid in this first year? <laughs> Everyone makes a lot of promises, you know that, yeah. Mayor-elect. So what, if any, have they told you about what not to do? Yeah, so it's interesting. They, they they have different styles. So Mayor Franklin is like, she's rolling up her sleeves trying to help me out. You know, she's she's trying to help me think through things on the transition team. Um, and Mayor Campbell, he is the person that told me way back when I first announced that I was running. He said, you can win because you have the energy and people trust you. And I said right then and there, I said, trust and energy are going to be my currencies. And he said, because he was high energy and he ran, certain, mm -hmm. you know, he, he just up all day and night and could make 20 meetings in a day if required to. And so he's like, keep that energy, go, always be seen, be seen, be out there, have your ideas ready. And he wasn't saying sharpen your ideas or perfect them in any way. He's just like, go. And Mayor Franklin is more like, well, what are you going to do? You know, and how is this going to work? And That's a good Shirley Franklin. What are you going to do? That yeah, sounds just like I, I was trying to. I was trying to. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, um, you know, others are more cautious. Uh, I haven't talked to Mayor Reed, but we've exchanged pleasantries through the airwaves. Um and uh, Mayor, Mayor, Mayor Bottoms is uh, giving me help as to transition and what's happening in her office now and what's going on and what should I keep in. Speaking of Mayor Bottoms, when we spoke about her decision not 
to seek re-election, and she was very honest about through her lens. She felt like in that first year, she knew that perhaps she wasn't going to seek re-election. I don't know if it's burnout. Maybe it was just, I don't know, pressure. She did not mention those words. Do you have a concern about the pace that you're going already? Mm-hmm. You mentioned Bill Campbell said, be out there, energy, keep that energy going. Listen, you and I are old. <laughs> We're 90s kids. <laughs> a little bit of 80s, a little bit of 90s. Yeah. The energy goes up and down. So do you worry about how you're going to pace yourself? And I, then how are you going to pace yourself? I'm not worried about that right now. Uh, you know, there's friends of mine. My mom, she always calls, did you get something to eat? Did you rest? She's, she does that. And I'm like, no, I I didn't. I, I managed to nibble on something, and I, and I slept a few hours last night. But I had to be up for this, and I had to read this. And so I – I hate disappointing people, and I really don't like to miss a, a deadline or a deliverable. It's just something in me that uh, completion is a uh, part of a disorder I have. Like, I eat all my food off of my plate. <laughs> I finish every book I read. But there is no playbook for being the mayor. Yeah. So you've seen, obviously, how other mayors, what works for them. You're just going to have to develop, it appears, your own style. Yeah, my, my style is, you know, going to be a little bit different from the rest of them because I've seen it. Uh, each mayor has their own style. Uh, Andrew Young had that inclusivity, and that's kind of like me. I, I'm kind of open arms for everybody, which means that I have more people saying, give me 10 minutes, let me meet for you for 30 minutes. And I keep, inter- inter- you know, bringing in these new ideas that they have um, and, and shuffling them around and seeing how it can work or not work. Uh, but... You know, right now I'm going to, you know, wear out instead of rust out. I'm going to wear out. It's going to work me to the bone, and I'm going to make sure I solve problems for the citizens of Atlanta with their help. You said a week ago there was no S on your chest. Mm -hmm. You said it was time to unify the city. You feel like Atlanta's pretty fractured right now, whether it's from government or just throughout the city. Yeah. I said I'm going to put a us on my chest, not just a S. We have to come together. It is, you know, we have a portion of our city. Some individuals say they want to leave and want to create a city called Buckhead City. And I don't think that's a good idea. That's actually not the solution to the problem that is stated. Me being an engineer, I like to draw my lines clearly. You know, this is the solution to the problem that you desire to have. What is the solution then? Because it appears that there is a, a Buckhead Cityhood movement here. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's clear. We know that they need to get the General Assembly on board and all that. And there could be some, if you agree with other reports, there are some outside influences. So let's start there with Buckhead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Buckhead, it feels like they want to be safe and they want to be heard. They want some people in government to hear them. The mayor needs to be responsive to them, and also they want the city services to be improved. We can take care of all that in the first 120 days. Start, You'll start seeing the city services improved, and you'll start to see uh, a lot of our efforts towards reducing violent crime in our city. Have you met with this group? The, the Buckhead the, group. The separatists, no. I've met with, I'm meeting with the individuals that want to stay, mm-hmm. and then I'm meeting with the folks that want to leave. So I've met with several of the, the leaders of the, the United Atlanta, the movement to stay, mm-hmm. but those individuals like Bill White and others that want to leave, I'm serving, saving that for next week. You campaigned on tackling Atlanta's what you call generational problems. Mm-hmm. So what's on the top of that list? Poverty. I believe that poverty is the enemy of the state. 
because especially multi-generational poverty, um, that poverty that continues to persist no matter who's in office, no matter what new company comes to downtown, midtown, or Buckhead, no matter what we put in place that says Atlanta influences everything, those individuals find themselves stuck behind uh, all of us economically. And that is our problem that shows up as homelessness, it shows up as evicted people, it shows up as abandoned properties, it also sometimes shows up as crime. We got to solve that problem. Speaking of property, because when it comes to housing affordability, and this is an ongoing initiative, so it's not new for your administration, which will be, but you said one factor could be building on publicly owned vacant land. Mm-hmm. And the Atlanta Housing Authority owns a lot of it. Sure does. However, and you know Eugene Jones, the CEO, mm-hmm. he says that that's not so easy. There's a lot of regulations and all that that come about. How do you propose working with this agency here? Because it appears that the Atlanta Housing Authority and the city of Atlanta should be working hand in hand together right. with this. Yeah, I mean, I respect Eugene, and I'm I'm hopeful that whatever he said, it was a lot more than that it was difficult. I'm hoping that he said what I need him to say, which is uh, we're going to do it, even though well, it's difficult. Well, you said it could take years. Developments could take years. Well, yeah. And, you know, right now, if you're a private developer and you want to build one of these apartment complexes, it's going to take you about 18 months to two years. So that's just standard construction. But with the red tape with federals, federal governments and the grants, it might add on a year to that. But in my first year, we're going, in my first term, if I'm blessed to have two terms, but in my first term, we're going to build on Atlanta Housing Authority land. We're going to Bowen. We're going to Herndon. We're going to Inglewood. We must. And this is why in talking to Biden, I've already talked about uh, Sec- HUD Secretary Fudge. We've had our set up for our meeting. So I'm and I'm going to D.C. next Tuesday. I mean, I'm on it already. As it relates to housing, affordability, development around said neighborhoods, obviously, is a big issue. You told me during one of the forums that I moderated, you said you made a promise that you would probably need to renegotiate. For example, let's start with Microsoft, wants to come over to Grove Park. Uh, You said you wanted to also be instrumental in terms of what's going to happen with the Mall West End. Mm -hmm. Those are two promises you plan to keep. Yeah, absolutely. I'm having conversations about the Mall West End um, later, if not today. We're kind of trying to make it today. If not, it'll be for tomorrow. I really want to see that happen in the first six to 12 months to have a deal inked and ready to go that the citizens will be excited about that also preserves affordability, builds some units of affordable housing in there, and also has a place for even in the commercial aspects of it that small businesses can afford. All that across from a MARTA station and next to the AU Center is going to be uh, amazing. Have the big big developments like with Microsoft and whatever's going to happen with the Mall West End, and we know what's happened with the Gulch and there are other examples there. Ponsity Market. Has there always been too much given to these big time developers and not enough for the communities that it envelops? Yeah, I think there's been times where I voted no on deals because I wanted to see more for the community. I love the logos. Atlanta being headquarters to all these uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies. But I love my people even more. So 
I'm not going to go out there just for the logo and lose the efforts to make sure that people can actually live in the city and be ex- have access to jobs or contracting opportunities in these major developments. It is a, a it, we have to develop win-win-wins. We can't have win-win losses. I will say no to a deal if until it looks like what the citizens would be satisfied that with. That does include going back over whatever Microsoft is offering and whatever you feel like is missing. Yeah. Now, the good the, the thing about Microsoft, they haven't asked for any government assistance. They just bought land. That's mm-hmm. a huge amount of land there. But I've been in talks with them about training our local residents to get these $60,000, $100,000 jobs, making sure that they have contracting opportunities for our local uh, construction crews, and to do some good in the community with the nonprofits and the schools. They're committing to it. Now, when I become mayor, I'll make sure that the income looks right. The voice you hear is Mayor-elect Andre Dickens, of course, in one of his first, uh, we hope, of many interviews here on this program here at WABE. Now, so far in this conversation, you've talked a lot about what you want. Obviously, there's a city council. Yeah. You have a new city council, along with a new city council president. You've been on the end where you know what it's like to not maybe have direct access to the mayor's office. First question, do you plan to change that communication? Yeah, I want to work well with council. Being a council person and, uh, you know, at large council member, the cool thing is everywhere I go, I was in somebody's district. Every time I do something good, I had to say, hey, before I get there, I want to let you guys know I'm doing this in your neighborhood. And the district council people respect that and they uh, and they actually appreciate it. That's how I'm going to be as mayor, inviting them into the conversation to have uh, routine meetings. Uh, I'm making calls as we speak to council members that are just one and also my colleagues that have been with me for quite a while it's a lot of new people coming on the council yes. and a new council president and they all are talented folks that want to do some stuff right away and i'm not going to be one that's going to say hey 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 let me step out in front of that i'm going to be one that says as long as it's doing good let's do it together you know then that committee assignments are so key <laughs> yeah you know i asked uh City Council President-elect Doug Shipman, had he received, you know, a case of Chardonnay for people <laughs> wanting to get the committee of their choice? Yeah. <laughs> Anybody offer you, like, Brave season tickets or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, nobody's giving me any, uh, any of that stuff. But I remember I was a as a council member, I was a chairperson all eight years. Mm-hmm. So Cesar Mitchell and uh, Felicia Moore made me a chairperson for all those years, and I thank them. Uh, and, and I'm glad I didn't have to give them Chardonnay to make them do it. But what advice do you have for the new council members? You know, I asked you about mm-hmm. advice people give you. For some of them, never held public office. This is new. What advice are you giving them about being able to balance needs of their community, maybe influences from other entities Mm -hmm. and then also when it comes to voting yeah check both sides of the street before you cross because the person that's running up to you saying you can't do this or you should not do that then there's somebody else that's saying no that's a good idea so you need to look at especially uh, across this city there's always a yay and a nay Mm -hmm. and you know uh, and trying to just measure how many phone calls you got I got three yays and I got two nays that means I got to go with yay you have to be able to have some discernment but actively look for somebody on both sides based on that was there a time then when you were a city council person that you regret a decision that you made or because you didn't look both ways, as you just said? Yeah. So, you know, I voted no 
to uh, the Gulch. I voted no to the Civic Center. And, um, and you regret then, voting no for the Gulch? No, I don't regret voting no. I What I regret is that um, I could have really made sure that I went back over to the other side of the uh, you know the other you know what we call the other side of the hallway that's mm-hmm. the mayor's side and say listen these are the things that I'm missing in there I can get to yes if you give me these I should have did that you know a few more times and maybe that would have helped uh, because I think it's a it's a dynamic project but I thought it was missing some of the equity components and now some of that stuff is coming out and it's very good and I wish I was um, able to add my additional input in there and that I was heard more um so that's one. And then I thought underground, I thought we should have just, you know, underground. I voted yes to it. And I think that that was not a uh, you see, we don't have an underground that's built out yet. <laughs> Something's coming, though, right? It's coming. The new people are real. This is the, the new group. It's going to get it's going to be right. But the first group that that group was basically a suburban developer and they didn't have any idea how to do adaptive reuse of something that's historic like that. Trusting that would never be a, be something I would do again. Well, let's just focus on Atlanta's downtown because I've heard a lot of folks say, God, our downtown is just so insert your, you know, yeah. your descriptor there. Some say it's very boring. Some say it's unsafe. Some say, well, we need this. We need that. How do you, what do you think about Atlanta's downtown? What's missing? I mean, Georgia State owns half of it, but right, right. We all got a Panther card uh, when because <laughs> Georgia State owns all of you know, a lot of downtown, which I'm okay with Georgia State because that's my alma mater also. But um, what's missing is that there needs to be a soul to downtown. A downtown needs to have a a a reason to be, and that's where whether it's the Gulch or it's underground, we just have to give it. Um, some you know so there's government centers and mm-hmm. yeah it's boring because it doesn't have a soul it needs to have one more more than what it has it has a, let me not say it doesn't have one it doesn't have enough of a description of what that soul or some identifying something to say this is our downtown yeah yeah it needs a north star to it that that everybody can when i'm down there i feel safe um city city hall is down there i eat i go to the restaurant uh but i think that we need more Public safety, and I believe I asked all of you all this on the many, again, mayoral forums that we were together with. So now that you have been elected mayor, Mayor-elect Dickens, do you need to search for a new chief of police? We are about to have a lot of hiring going on. Um, In my administration, it's a, you know, when you do turnover, some people will stay, some will go. It's going to be a lot of hiring. And uh, police are rank and file order. They need to know who's the boss. And right now, um, for what it's worth, I think that we can keep Rodney Bryan for the first 100 days. Chief Bryan and I are having conversations about what that looks like. But for me, it's metrics driven, Uh, bringing down the violent crime rate, making sure that we hire new officers at a certain rate to be able to get to the 250 that I'm trying to see added. Is the hiring of new officers the key factor here? In bringing down the violent crime, or are there some other optics around that you want to address? Right, it's the the fourth 
part of the metrics is community-based policing, to getting officers out of their cars, meeting the community, going to the uh, gas stations and the shopping centers. It is both having more officers, but how you utilize those officers, how connected to the community they are, and how present and visible they are, especially when they're trained to de-escalate situations. What have they told you? Have you talked to zone commanders? Have you talked to the officers in the community to see what perhaps solutions they may have? Yeah. They're the ones that are out there. Yeah, so zone commanders are, and, and I'm going to go, and as soon as I leave here, I'm going to zone two roll call and zone three roll call mm-hmm. and meet with those officers, look them in the eye and talk to them. This will be my first time since being mayor-elect. I've done that in the past. But what they tell me, and I'll, I'll, I'll report back to you, I bet you when I go, there's 14 beats, and I'll bet you 10 to 11 of them will be filled, and there'll be three beats that no one is covering. So essentially, what does that say to you then? That we have an officer shortage. That these, you know, ten or eleven individuals are going to cover the role for fourteen, and really, it's covering the role for about eighteen because you should have what we call umbrella officers that kind of float around, you know, the whole uh, zone. We're short. And so that means that, you know, folks are going to have to cover other people's territory, which means backup comes slower, which means that if you're writing a ticket, anything can happen. Does it also mean that perhaps with some of the calls that these officers are responding to, perhaps you need to delegate out? And I believe you said during the the PAD initiative Mm -hmm. that you want to, if not improve, but expand that program so that officers aren't necessarily answering those calls, which may be what you call low incident or, or non-threatening. Non, non, yeah, yeah, these non-emergency, non-violent, uh, you know, I- incidents where you have somebody outside of a restaurant that's experiencing a mental health challenge. Do you send in a police officer to deal with that or do you send specialists? I believe we should send specialists because I want the police officer ready to patrol these neighborhoods to make sure somebody's not breaking in or that a, a murder is not happening or a rape or whatever. So I think that... Violent crime can be only dealt with with police officers uh, once the issue is, is taking place. But there's several agencies that can help with homelessness, that can help with mental health challenges. And we have to get those things underway and start our uh, that, that part of our operations. With just a few minutes left, I do want to get to some issues that you were will con- inherit, so to speak, because they were still under uh, even before Mayor Bottoms. But. The neighborhood of People's Town. Mm-hmm. This has been going on for a long time. I believe there may be three or four neighbor households left. I'm not sure the exact number. What is the best remedy for that? Because I believe those households have been served with evictions. Mm-hmm. Folks say they want to stay. They say there's no flooding. What do you plan to do about this? Yeah, this is a dynamic issue. It's a, it's a tough one because you got four houses left on this whole block. And those four houses are occupied by people. Um, three of them are occupied by the original residences and one is occupied by the daughter of Maddie Jackson. Mm-hmm. And we are trying to find us. I don't want anybody evicted. I don't want anybody evicted. It's about to be cold outside. I want us to make sure that people have a place to stay. Um, so one is making sure that doesn't happen. Two is uh, these these properties were, they belong to the city now. They, that, that imminent because domain y'all, happened. All right. In the past. Sure. And so now finding a solution that resolves the flooding but preserves these houses, I'm looking at 
all of the engineering right now. This and is, you are an engineer, I'm so an engineer. you can read the blueprints and diagrams. That's and right. You of all people know what's factual and what's not. Right. Well, I, I, I was an engineer. <laughs> I decided to become a mayor elect. But yes, I, I, I've read some drawings before. So I'm going to look at it with trained experts and say, how can this you know, what it is is a retention pond and vault. How can this vault be drawn in a certain way that preserves those houses? And if it can, let's do it. If it can't, then we have to go back to them and say, hey, it's just absolutely an impossibility. And I want to make sure that we go through that process. You've talked about talking to police officers, city council members, the community. Is there a group or an entity that you definitely want to get to within the first hundred? days of your administration and start working on solutions to all those generational problems that you told me about just moments ago. Yeah, Atlanta public school system, making sure that I immediately start locking down those relationships and creating the, you know, the the synergies between us because the kids are in school 8 hours a day but they're back in the city 16 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So that means improved sidewalks, after school programs, mentorship and, and making uh, sure that their their revenue isn't being, you know, snatched away with some of these developers with the tax incentives. Yeah, 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 that too. <laughs> and making sure that Buckhead stays in the city of Atlanta because that would hurt the schools the worst out of all of us. Uh, so making, yeah, so doing that, working with the state is going to be big. Mm-hmm. Um Letting the state know that I am someone who is available, I care about our relationship, and I know that there are job opportunities, business opportunities, and other things that can help grow our region and our city, and that I'm here for it. Where we disagree, we're going to disagree privately, and and, and then we'll disagree loudly about the issue, but not personally. We know that Mayor Reed and then-Governor Nathan Dale had a pretty good relationship. Uh, It is very clear that Mayor Bottoms and Governor Kemp did not. Uh, how do you what is your relationship with Governor Kemp? Yeah, I've talked to Governor Kemp by phone a couple of times. He congratulated me the other day. He called me after the election right before I even was you know, able to even call others. He was very you know, excited and thankful uh, or, or congratulatory. He and I are going to meet for breakfast on Thursday. I've talked to Speaker Ralston, who's the Speaker of the House. You're going to take him to Busy B? You should take him to Busy B. <laughs> <laughs> the next meeting, uh, this one he called it, uh, you know, so he's picked the spot. Uh, but we got a uh, lieutenant governor and others. I'm talking to these Republicans in the state house, and I want to. It's a big. Sure. It's a big election year, uh, 2022. Uh, you expect those relationships? Y'all gonna still be hanging out, having breakfast? Uh, uh, well, you know, I, I got a friend named Stacy. <laughs> I was. Uh, if they check my social media, they they scroll up. They're gonna see me every other day with a Stacy shirt on back, in, you know, eighteen. But um, I, I don't think that our politics would get in the way of what we know is good for the city. If if, if anybody that's running for governor or state or, or a U.S. Senate is smart, they're gonna say making sure that the mayor of Atlanta is in good relationship with them is helpful in their in their future. Describe your leadership style. Visionary, inclusive, uh, and uh, entrepreneurial, but um, with integrity. Are you hardest on yourself or is mom? (laughs) No, my mom is not hard on me anymore at all. Let my sister tell it is Dre, 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 Dre. (laughs) 
<laughs> everything is Dre. And I say, hey, you know, what's wrong with that? But she, she, she has to put up with hearing all my mom loving me stories. But um, I'm hard on myself. Every, every time I give a speech, I say, I forgot to say this. I forgot to say that. And are you one who will admit to missteps, mistakes? Yeah, I have to, uh, because forgiveness is a part of uh, good leadership, too. So I, I'm going to have to forgive some people, and I'm going to ask for some forgiveness if I make a mistake. So, yeah, uh, let's do it. If I make a mistake, I'll own up to it. Just don't beat me up when I have to come on your show and say, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, fellow journalist Thomas Wheatley posted video of you dancing at your oh, Mays High School class. <laughs> The class of 1992, your 20th year high school reunion. Not bad. Now, you're not as good as my boys from New Edition. Shout right. out to Ryan DeVoe, who lives around here. But not bad. But a little, little slow, a little stiff there. Yeah, you know, that was 20 years after I was doing it. I'm now <laughs> old. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, 2012 or so. They had me on tape dancing. I was having a good time. And, of course, these local journalists, y'all like to pull up old stuff. That's right. When you remember what you said. (laughs) (laughs) He is Adamsville, Mayor-elect Andre Dickens. Thank you for taking the time. Till the next time, come back and talk some more. All right. Will do. Definitely. Continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Let that soak in for a moment. One of the greatest voices of our time. And of course is the great Mahalia Jackson. There is no doubt we all understand and feel the pain from the death of a loved one. But for the late Mrs. Mamie Elizabeth Till Mobley, well, she carried a pain that the entire world would also need to bear. Those words were like arrows sticking all over my body. My eyes were so full of tears until I couldn't see. And when I began to make the announcement Oh, that Emmett had been found. Oh, and how he was found. The whole house began to scream and to cry. And that's when I realized that this was a load that I was going to have to carry. I wouldn't get any help carrying this load. Now, that is how I opened this program three years ago. 
and it was at the round of time, but around the time that the federal government had already reopened the murder case of Emmett Till. There was a book written by then Duke University professor Timothy Tyson, and it included an interview with Carolyn Bryant Donham. If you don't know why she's important in all this, then just keep listening. You will shortly. Yesterday, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Mississippi announced that the investigation into Till's murder was now closed. So much to talk about here, but joining me, as he always does, for these type of conversations, very distinguished mentor, friend, colleague, award-winning journalist, Hank Klibanoff. Of course, you also know he is the host of WABE's award-winning podcast, Barry Truths. Hank, thank you so much for taking the time, as always. I'm happy to be here with you. Thank you. You know, I want to begin here for listeners who may not be familiar with the Emmett Till case. It seems like it, it it's hard to believe, but to the best that we can, let's recap kind of what happened in down in Money, Mississippi, back in 1955. It's uh, in Capsule. It's a a young man, 14 years old, a boy, really, uh, from Chicago, who was sent by his mother down to visit with his uncle and his cousins down in Money, Mississippi. His uncle, Mose Wright, was a farmer down there, and uh, he had a cousin his own age, uh, about his own age, Simeon Wright, and a bunch of other boys that they he would play with for the summer. And uh, they all shared a, a big bed inside Mr. Mose Wright's house. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was just going to have a great time swimming and fishing and doing all the things that 14-year-old boys do. Mm-hmm. And they part of theirs was going to a store in, in a nearby, you know, a nearby store owned by a white couple, uh, the Bryant family. And uh, that's when where the original drama happened. We're never sure what happened exactly that led to her husband and brother-in-law coming after him. And the allegations that Emmett Till might have whistled or said something to Miss Bryant then, uh, which to, as far as for many people, that was just never even proven, Hank. Um, if we'd spent time to go over the graphic details of what happened to this boy, to Emmett Till, the beatings, I believe he was tied down with, was it the a cotton gin fan or the engine of a cotton gin fan? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 75, 70, 75 pounds. Mm-hmm. And then tossed into a nearby, I think, a small pond or, or a lake or something. The Tallahatchie River. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Hank and you and I have both talked about this when we talk about the importance of the press and the black press back then, because it's that photo published by Jet Magazine of the open casket of Emmett Till. Even yeah. to this day, when we look at that, um, that really captured a global attention here. It did, and it's it did so because his mother, Mamie Till Bradley, insisted that the casket be opened and that people be able to see what they did to my boy, as, the, as she put it. And... Um, it was shocking. It first showed up in Jet magazine. And by the way, it never showed up in the white press in mm-hmm. those early times. Any any white newspaper that took it stole it from a black newspaper, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and But it, it really aroused just a, a fevered response from people, particularly in Chicago. And so then, Hank, for decades, and folks lobbying for the DOJ to, to because it was closed and they opened it again and it was closed. And they, but what was interesting was with this book, that the Duke University professor in it, he claims that he interviewed Carolyn, Mrs. Donham here, and that she recanted and said that nothing happened. 
And that's what led to the DOJ re- reopening this case. But then now they come and say, well, there is no evidence that she did recant. And, of course, her relatives say that she never said it. Well, what she said to him, according to him, to Tom Tyson, Tim Tyson, sorry, was um, that's not what that pointing to the script, to the uh, the, uh, the transcript of the trial mm-hmm. said, that's not true. You know, what 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 I'm what I said in that's not true was the implication. It's not really clear what she was referring to because she was on the stand for a while. Mm-hmm. And what's not true, we just don't know. Um, you know, this was uh, it was really foggy. It's very vague. Um, I, you know, if I were trying to write what she said, I would be, I would, I would have, it would be painstaking to try to capture what, what the meaning of what she said is. And (laughs) Tim Tyson didn't really go to great pains to try to explain what she meant or didn't mean and to draw, you know, delineators around it. Um, and you know, he did not record it. Uh, he (laughs) said at one point. Um, and he, uh, although according to the Justice Department statement, he turned he said he had two recordings and he turned over one and it didn't have anything about that on the recording. And he didn't ever turn over the other one. But another time he said he didn't ever record it and he didn't have notes of it. So and he's a you know, he's a responsible journalist. I mean, he has been in the past. So I'm not sure, frankly, what's going on there. She's still alive, as far as we know, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. She is. And, I, you know, the question is, what, what could she be charged with at this point? Okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, even if, I mean, I think there by some standards, I mean, in the same way that in Georgia, some people were surprised that even though only one person shot Ahmaud Arbery, three people could be charged with murder. Okay? And the same way over in Mississippi, she could have been charged with manslaughter just by being the person who identified mm-hmm. him, who uh, who said, yes, that's him to her husband. OK. But try to accuse her of being accomplice to a crime for which the two men were acquitted. So mm-hmm. technically, in the, under the law, there was no crime. And is it because she was it was state? It was a state trial? Right. Perjury did always, not. Exist. Always, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to murder, you always want to take it into the state that, you know, it's not going to be a federal crime unless it's on federal mm-hmm. property or across state lines. Hank, the Reverend Wheeler Parker is a cousin of Emmett Till. He was actually mm-hmm. 16 years old when the when he says the two white men came and took Emmett. Mm-hmm. He spoke during a press conference upon hearing the news that this investigation was now closed. Let's listen. Sure. The biggest thing was. I hope you didn't die in vain. He did not die in vain. We still hear Emmett speaking from the grave. Many things have been changed and many things have come about because of his death. Uh, Whatever we do, we can't bring him back, but we can carry on and let America know. We need to know the truth and that's what we look for and we all have a responsibility uh, Amy Till's death has caused some changes, and it let us, through his death, we can see how far we've come and how much work we still have to do. Hank, is there any sense of, or what should the sense of closure look like at this point, 66 years later, for the family of Emmett Till? 
Well, you know, and I, I deal with this in the civil rights cold cases class that I teach at Emory and at mm-hmm. Barry Truce, and that is that many times these per- the perpetrators are dead. Mm-hmm. So there can uh, there can never be criminal justice. But I do believe in the justice that history can bring to these cases. And by a factual rendering of what happened in these cases and naming names, I do believe is is a, is a judgment in its own. And uh, it's there's no doubt but that J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant killed and should have been adjudicated under the law to have murdered Emmett Till. There's no doubt. You know, they will have to carry that to their graves. And I have to tell you, whether this is justice or not, but when Roy Bryant died, he was living in Memphis, I believe. The Memphis Commercial Appeal ran one of those little small paid obituaries, mm-hmm. but, but you know, death notices, but there was no obituary. No one even remembered who he was, for better or for worse. But they both died somewhat ignominiously. Uh, they, they had lost friends. They had lost jobs. Uh, there was some some payback there. Mm-hmm. And I, but the other thing that I'm going to quickly say that Parker Wheeler is referring to is that when Emmett Till died in Tallahatchie County, it was 63% black and there was not one black person registered to vote. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Rose, I didn't do my homework, go to see what it is today. So we'll charge our audience with going and do your, do, do the research and find mm-hmm. out out of the, what the reg- voter registration is in Tallahatchie County, and and then compare it to 1955. Hank, there's so many of these cases that are out there. Uh, obviously, we know of the significance and the importance of, of Emmett Till here. You know, even 50 years from now, people will probably talk about, still be talking about Ahmaud Arbery, mm-hmm. talking about Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. talking about you know Breonna Taylor, talking about Elijah, I think McCain out in in, in Colorado. So many of the cases from decades ago that you are still working on. Mm -hmm. And someone asked the question, but what do we do with all of this? What do we do when we unearth these buried truths? Because they say, well, it's supposed to lead to change. You heard what Reverend Parker had to say. There's been some changes, but there's still a lot to do. So even if there is no justice, so to speak, done, but telling these stories does lend itself to some type of, I don't know about healing, but at least acknowledgement. And I don't even know about reconciliation, but at least acknowledgement about what happened during these cases. Yes. And I guarantee you, if some member of the family of the Bryant or Milam family tomorrow went and visited with members of the Till family and apologized that would be a page one story in every newspaper in America, okay? Because and it, because people understand that has sort of this catalytic value mm-hmm. in, 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 in reconciling a, a moment in history, if not an attitude. That would have value, regardless of what we feel about whether or not Miss Carolyn recanted her story, but we know that Emmett Till was murdered by these two men. That is That's right. given. That's a fact. You're That's saying right. if there is some type of acknowledgement from the Bryant family to the Till family, that goes a long way. It goes, and it always gets attention when, you know, when the man out of North Carolina who hit John Lewis over the head when he got on the Freedom Ride bus in Rocky uh, Rocky Mount, I think it was, or Rock Hill, maybe South Carolina, you know, showed up at his office in Washington and apologized. That got 
CNN, big splash on CNN. Mm -hmm. And in my cold case, the first uh, episode of first season of uh, Barry Truth, Isaiah Nixon, mm -hmm. when, you know, the nephew of the two men who killed Isaiah Nixon showed, you know, showed up at uh, Dorothy Nixon Williams' house to mm -hmm. apologize to her, that carries significance, that carries value. So I, I think that does go a long way. I remember speaking with George Wallace's daughter, Mm -hmm, right. And she talked about the conversation George Wallace had, I believe, with it might have been uh, John Lewis and maybe even Reverend Laurie. I can't remember exactly who was there, but he sort of went through his apology phase. Now, he was gravely ill at the time. Um, don't know how much press that got, but it got a lot of press. Yeah. And I was there when he when he met with Jesse Jackson before Super Tuesday of was it 84? Mm -hmm. Um and there was a lot of that going on. It 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 matters, you know. It 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 carry, you know, people pay attention to that. Every the anytime the question is, will one grant forgiveness? Why is it we all sit a little closer toward the edge of our seats to hear? Did it happen? Mm -hmm. It's it's one of the great mysteries and moments of suspense in life, whether one person will forgive another. And when it happens, it's powerful. As a journalist, as a historian, as someone who is still digging into these cases, where does the murder of Emmett Till lie in our history? Oh, it's near the top, and no one will no one will ever not know it, and no one will ever forget it. You know what can we do? We can say what you know. A whole other group of people who were you know destroyed, demolished in in World War II, the Jewish people will say, you know, mm -hmm. never again. Mm -hmm. Never again. Hank it should Klibanoff. be adopted. Absolutely. Hank Klibanoff, professor of practice, creative writing program at Emory University, also director of the Georgia Civil Rights Cold Case Project, Pulitzer Prize winning author and Peabody recipient for his work on WAB's podcast, Barry Truths. Hank, as always, thank you so much for coming on and, and giving our listeners a little bit more knowledge. We appreciate that. Thank you, Rose. Appreciate it. It's good being with you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our producers, our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it is online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. We don't have a Peabody, but it's pretty cool. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.